sermon reading is uh, taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance, of, entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why, don't, why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it, to, sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front, row, in the front line where the fighting is fierce, or fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will, give, he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger... When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Bishop? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers showed, shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had, him, had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Good morning, everyone, again. Uh, it's quite a weighty passage uh, that we're going to look at today. But before we get into it, I, I just want to acknowledge a, a couple of things. Uh, firstly, uh, as we talk about adultery, I want to acknowledge that this is uh, deeply personal and painful for some people uh, who are listening. And this is part of their personal experience. Uh, secondly, this passage talks a lot about sex and deceit and murder but there's not a whole stack of grace and forgiveness or justice for that matter. And, and that will come, and we will get to that next week. But for this week, uh, I just want us to feel the weight of the sin uh, and feel the weight of the situation. Uh, so if you just come this week but ne miss next week, you only get half the picture, okay? It ends up being a very distorted picture of what's going on. You've got to, you've now have to come to both, all right? So this is all part of my scheme, right? Uh, thirdly, uh, when it comes to understanding how to apply a passage in the Bible, and particularly a passage like this, which is its narrative, uh, we need to recognise that there is sometimes a difference between what the passage is trying to teach us and what we might learn from it. So in this particular passage, this whole account of David and Bathsheba has been included to show how God is faithful to his promises. And so the key verses from last week in our passage uh, was in chapter 7 where it said this, When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Uh, so this account is an affirmation of that promise to David. David has sinned uh, as badly, if not worse than Saul, but God will be faithful to his promise. Uh, but at the same time, we can still learn a lot from this whole situation, the example, about temptation and sin and adultery. Uh, and so we need to recognise that even though we're learning from an example, uh, there's also a teaching point that's going on. So with those things in mind, let me pray as we get into this passage. Uh, dear Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you might help us to feel the weight of sin and its consequences. Help each of us to honour you in whatever relational circumstances you have placed us. Amen. 
So our account begins with a sense of anonymity and opportunity. It's spring. Uh, David should have been out there in the countryside leading his men, but instead he is at home. Uh, Meanwhile, most of his men are out in the countryside uh, fighting the war. And it's night. And so one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And so you can see how this journey into sin begins. He sees and he desires, and that could have been the end of it, but then he acts on that desire, and so he sends someone to find out about this woman, and he discovers that she is a married woman. And again, you you would have thought that that could have been the end of it, right? But he then sends for her, and literally he takes her. So there's a whole stack of moments uh, in this account where David could have made a different choice. Uh, But of course, that's so often how sin works. Uh, There are choices to be made each step of the way, and we cross boundaries one by one until we finally really step over it. And, you know, so if we're talking about an affair, you know, perhaps it starts with simply being friendly and then perhaps being a little bit flirty. And, of course, we, we justify it as just harmless banter. But then left unchecked, uh, that becomes desire. And finally, we manufacture opportunity. So in the words of the Apostle James, which we read earlier, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And sin gives birth to death when we are no longer willing to acknowledge our sin as sin, and actually repent. So we might be sorry, uh, we're probably definitely sorry if we get caught, Uh, we're sorry that other people are hurt, but that we might not be sorry in the sense that we actually then change our behaviour. You know, the damage is already done, so I can't go back, so I may as well just keep going forward. So let's be clear, there are choices to be made, and David has no one to blame but himself. You know, so often as Christians, we want to blame our culture for our sin and struggles. So we're outraged at the accessibility of pornography or at social media and the way it presents this curated and idealised picture of life. Or perhaps we're frustrated by the pressures of our peers and social expectation. Or perhaps we simply want to blame love. Uh, in the words of the filmmaker Woody, Har- sorry, Woody Allen, the heart desires what the heart desires. So when he had an affair with his adopted daughter, he turned around and said, well, actually, I'm a victim in this circumstance. Who am I to restrain those deep-felt emotions and desires? And so all of those pressures and temptations and desires are real, And we should be concerned about things like the impact of pornography on our culture or social media. But we can't use those things as an excuse uh, to blame someone else. Eve did not make Adam eat the fruit. 
Bathsheba did not make David lust or sin and commit adultery. Uh, David had choices and he chose to sin. And doing the right thing in the moment can be hard, can't it? Yeah, and in the, in the moment, that sin and temptation just feels irresistible, uh, particularly when we feel vulnerable or we're struggling with all sorts of other sinful desires like lust or jealousy or anger or greed. And sometimes we get frustrated at God. You know, God, you know, why doesn't your spirit make life easier? You know, if you don't want me to sin, then don't make sin so tempting. Uh, so the Apostle Paul says this, he says, No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So Paul writes these words as a word of comfort. We might feel weak and powerless and sin might feel irresistible, uh, but we do actually have the power to say no. Uh, But with that also comes some responsibility. Uh, We cannot simply blame everyone else and we cannot blame God. Uh, So what are some things we can do to protect ourselves? And in the context of this passage, how do we protect ourselves in our marriages? So this is where it gets a bit awkward. But let me suggest five things. And I suspect uh, if you're meeting in your Connect group this week, then you'll be able to add a whole stack more to this. But let's, here's five that I think are helpful. Firstly, don't lose sight of who you are. Uh, I am a Christian. I am committed to following Jesus in my life. And I am a married man. And so as, whoever we are, we need to keep that perspective. And we need to keep that conviction because that's going to shape our behaviour. Secondly, we need to pray that God's Spirit helps us with that conviction, because we do feel weak and we are sinful, and so we need to pray that God will give us the help to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. Uh, Number three, keep investing in in your marriage. When you read about uh, why people have affairs, uh, often you hear how people feel uh, emotionally or sexually or physically disconnected from the other person. You know, those feelings don't justify adultery, uh, but if we keep investing in our marriage, then we can at least preempt some of those temptations and perhaps take some of those temptations away. You know, so what can we do to make our husband or wife you know, feel loved? Yeah, it might be telling them that they are loved and giving them lots of affirmation. Uh, for others, it might be shared experiences. Yeah, they might love just going out, driving in the countryside for a day. And for you, you can think, yeah, I can think of better things to do. Uh, but, you know, it's not really about the driving, is it? I mean, that's part of it. But it's just about that shared experience. And for that person, that shared experience is also about connection. And so, yep, do it if you enjoy it, but also perhaps do it even if you don't love it for the sake of your relationship. You know, if it's love and romance that they need and feel, then work hard. Okay, how do I, you know, show love and romance? How do I woo that other person? And if it's about sex, well, then have more sex. Uh, And work out, you know, what sort of sex does that other person like that helps them feel loved? I think number four, uh, beware of who you bond with and boundaries. 
Uh, that can be true if it's bonding with your husband or wife's best friend. Uh, it could be a work colleague. It could be someone who just sits down next to you at a bar. But the more we bond, the more we desire, uh, the more we are tempted to act on that desire. And so where we start is rarely where things end. And number five, beware of opportunity. When we feel lonely, when we feel anonymous, when we feel sexually frustrated, when, we are cons- you know, when we've consumed alcohol, uh, they're all moments uh, where we feel more vulnerable, more prone to temptation. And again, that temptation might be a friend at a Christmas party, it might be a prostitute, it might be pornography. Yeah, it's so far focused you know, primarily on married couples and adultery. But this could be true if we're talking about a couple dating. It could be true for some of them, at least, if we're talking about singles. Uh, but no matter who we are, uh, things get harder uh, once we have crossed a boundary. Uh, because next time it's just that little bit easier uh, to cross and that little bit harder to say no. So David sees, he desires and he sins. Uh, And he might have got away with it, except Bathsheba sends him a message and lets him know that she is pregnant. Uh, And her uncleanness uh, is a reference to her menstrual cycle, probably also suggests that she wasn't just with David for one night, but perhaps for a period of time. Uh, But either which way, uh, this child is absolutely no doubt David's. And so David comes up with a plan uh, to cover up his sin by sinning some more. And so he calls Uriah back from the war and he's you know, thinking, well, I'll ask him you know, how it's all going and then no doubt uh, Uriah will go home, he'll have sex with his wife and everyone be- will believe that the child is his. You know, crisis averted. But it turns out that Uriah is a man of quite exceptional character and honour. So David's told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, have you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go home to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You know, Uriah has every right to go home and to be with his wife. Uh, But for him, it's a matter of principle. Now, how could he indulge in personal pleasure while his brothers are out there, you know, risking their life? You know, they've got their life on the line for God and country and king. You know, Uriah understands honour. Uh, in a way that perhaps we don't even appreciate as we live in in a predominantly peaceful culture. But for David, uh, he's not challenged by Uriah's honour. In fact, there's no remorse whatsoever. He decides to try again. But this time, he's going to get Uriah drunk, okay? Because he figures, you know, if I get him drunk, he'll, you know, sort of lower his standards and principles and inhibitions, and then surely uh, he will go home and sleep with his wife. Uh, but even sloshed, uh, Uriah has more character and conviction and honour than David in this moment. And so he refuses to go home. You know, David knows the law. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. 
Uh, In Leviticus, God says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And so David knows the seriousness of his actions and he's going to do anything he possibly can to avoid the shame and the humiliation and the consequences of what he has done, uh, even to the point of orchestrating Uriah's murder. And so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Yeah, it doesn't get any more corrupt than that, does it? Yeah, he, Uriah literally carries the letter that seals his fate. And so Job receives the letter and he complies. He goes against all the rules of war and he allows his men to get too close to the enemy wall. And as a result, Uriah is killed. And when Joab sends word to David about how the the war is going, he knows that David is going to question his competence because every competent military commander knows the lesson of Jerobesheth's son Abimelech. Okay, we all know it, right? You get too close to the enemy wall, people drop things on your head, and you die. Okay, everyone knows this. Okay, this is military commander 101. And so Joab preempts David's reaction and he includes the news. Your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. And so when David hears that news, he's a little more philosophical about Joab's competence. And he sends this message. David told the messenger, say to this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Yeah, bad things happen in war, Uh, but worse things happen uh, when you actually scheme to murder your own men. And that's what's happened here for the sake of his pride. So even now, David has absolutely no remorse for his action. From his perspective, it's allowing him to get away with everything. Now, I appreciate our sin doesn't usually end in murder, I hope, uh, but sin does have a way of spiralling out of control. You know, we don't have the courage to stop doing what we are doing. Uh, we are afraid of the humiliation and the shame, and so we try to cover it up, we try to lie about it. And of course, the more we lie, the more we need to lie, and the more we need to deceive. And certainly that's been the journey for David. And up to this point, it looks like he's got away with it. After Bathsheba mourned for the required amount of time, she moves into the palace. She becomes David's wife. They have a son and it all looks legitimate. All is well. That ends well. Except it's not over. This account concludes with these simple, understated, ominous words. The thing David has done displeased the Lord. You know, like all sin, uh, God sees and God cares. And inevitably, we will be held accountable for our sin. Uh, Sometimes we're held accountable in the moment. Uh, Right there and then it comes back to bite us. Uh, And God often uses that as a form of discipline. Uh, Sometimes it comes down the road, uh, months later, perhaps years later. And sometimes in this lifetime... There is no negative consequence for our sin, at least no perceivable consequence. 
But one day uh, we will all stand before God and one day we are all held accountable. Uh, So in the words of Paul, the sin of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sin of others trail behind them. So this passage paints a really bleak picture of human nature and sin and consequence. And thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. If this was it, uh, there would be no hope whatsoever. But of course, there is hope. And certainly for us, we are thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. But in the context of this passage, I just want us to feel the weight of sin. And I want us to feel the weight of our choices and consequence. You know, when it comes to sexual temptation, you know, most people in the moment aren't looking that far ahead to consider the consequences of their choices for them, for the people they love, uh, for their relationship with God. Uh, And that's why we need to be prayerful now. You know, before we are in the middle of that crisis, uh, before we are challenging, we need to be sober-minded while our our brain is still working uh, to be ready and prepared for what might come. Uh, So we can avoid temptation in the first place or say no when it confronts us. And of course, the sooner we recognise that temptation, then the easier it is to avoid. So let me pray uh, that we might have that clarity and conviction to be able to recognise sin and flee from it. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, uh, so often in our world, uh, we don't take sin seriously, uh, particularly if we don't see any real consequence in the moment. Uh, But Lord, we know that you take our sin seriously. And so, Lord, we pray that we feel the weight of it. Uh, Lord, help us to recognise our own weaknesses. Help us to recognise temptation. Uh, Help us to be convicted by your lordship and our desire to be obedient to you and to love others. And so, Lord, out of all of that, help us to then flee temptation. And, Lord, we do thank you that in your son there is still hope and there's the hope of forgiveness. Uh, But, Lord, we pray that that doesn't make us complacent about sin. And so this week, help us to hate our sin and to desire to honour you. Amen.